It is very good to be back with you all uh, and to be preaching in English this time, so I am thankful for that. And if you would, turn in your copy of Scripture to Judges chapter 5, Judges chapter 5, and if you don't have a copy of Scripture with you or on your phone, it's on page 203 in your pew Bible. And the title of that sermon is not correct, it's actually Friends Like the Sun, I think that's the sermon. Many Christians who are denying the fact continue and... For any, anyone who knows me, they know that I like to try to find middle ground. Uh, like any good theologian, I like to try to find the third way between two opposing views, but there are some things in life that are black and white. There are some things in life that are black and white, and yes, we ought to be gracious and kind and try to find mediating positions and really try to, try to find our footing and our grounding to say, hmm, maybe I'm holding my views a little too tightly and maybe I could open myself up to another perspective no matter how crazy it might sound. But maybe there is a corrective that I can receive from somebody on the other side of the aisle or somebody on the other side of an issue. Maybe I need to listen, and and I'm a huge advocate for that, and we live in a culture right now that talks about those kind of things, and I think it's helpful to do that because sometimes as human beings we do run a little too quickly to take up arms and to call the other side evil when, in fact, we have a log in our own eye. It's uh, really hard to navigate our culture wars, isn't it? Anybody that's tried to engage their neighbor or their coworker, and they don't know if what they're getting ready to say is going to cause somebody to throw coffee on them or not. I've oftentimes felt that, and even at times uh, in preaching, I, I can feel that too. It's no easy task to try to thread a needle sometimes or to put a camel through the eye of a needle, as it were. And no less is it really difficult for us in the midst of our culture wars to not be seen as the evil person. It's confusing to know how much is too much, isn't it? And while I've advocated for the fact that we can uh, live in the gray, and in fact most of life, I would argue, is in the gray areas of life, there are black and white issues of right and wrong. And it doesn't mean we ought to throw up our hands and compromise all the time to say that we should live in the, in the gray areas. But it does mean that we need to be aware and we need to know our, our scriptures well enough and God's call on our lives as Christians to know when is it time to fight and when is it time to lay down. And so uh, as I was looking at Judges chapter 5 and indeed the entire book of Judges, uh, I was left asking myself, what is it that Judges chapter 5 is trying to teach us? And indeed, what is the whole book of Judges, I would say, arguing for? And I I would answer it this way, and this would be the main point, as I see it this morning from this passage, is that there is a war, and we must engage in it. There is a war, and we must engage in it. Now, this doesn't mean that you need to start name-calling. Or hop on social media and start lambasting somebody else that isn't a Christian. That's not what that means. That's, that's a too little of a view of what we're talking about when it comes to war. And we're going to look at five different lessons from Judges chapter 5 uh, to be able to get at what God would have us to do. And I would really say that underneath all of this, our war should be waged like the war that Jesus waged, where he laid down his life for other people, which is antagonistic and contrarian to how our culture views war, isn't it? We oftentimes subscribe, whether we want to admit it or not, that might makes right. 
Instead of following after Jesus and say, how can I die to myself and serve this other person who is my enemy and forgive my enemy? As opposed to just loving those who agree with me. That was a quick turn, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a, whoa. <laughs> yeah. That's what Jesus is calling us to do when it comes to waging war is to say, how did Jesus wage war? And how is me as his follower, how am I called to wage war? And so this morning, I want each of us, including myself, to have running in the back of your mind some questions just to kind of guide our time through Judges chapter 5. Where have I made a truce with sin in my life? Where have I thrown out a white flag and said, I'm just always going to struggle with that sin, I guess. And we made a truce with sin. Or where have I given into fear of what others will think of me so that I am quiet when I should graciously speak out? Or where have I compromised with comfort rather than picked up a sword. And so we have five lessons from Judges chapter 5, and I've given them five words to help you remember if you're taking notes. It's sight, spirit, constant, decide, depend. I'll say them again. Sight, spirit, constant, decide, and depend. Those are our five points that we're going to be looking at together. So before I begin that, let's go ahead and read all of Judges chapter 5 together to get our bearings. And this is called Deborah's Song. So last week we looked at uh, Deborah and Barak having uh, destroyed the Canaanites through conquering Sisera, through the, the uh, advocate of jail. We don't have time to get into all those details, but this is the song that results after that deliverance. Analogous to Moses' song and to Miriam's song after their deliverance from Egypt. But look at Judges chapter 5, right after uh, their freedom was won from the Canaanites. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of, 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 of Abinoam, on that day, that, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings. Give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody, melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of jail, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers 
in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in song, arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their route, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, marched down the commanders. And from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanak by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Meraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women is be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. There is a lot here. And so that's why I've minimized it down to just five lessons that we learn as it relates to what it means to engage in war as the people of God. And so the first one is this, is sight. What we see in Deborah's song is that she interprets everything that happened in the previous chapter through the lenses of God. She looks at life through the divine lens. You see, because if if Scripture were only about content transfer, about, hey, you need to know more in, in, information in order to grow closer to God, if it were merely about content transfer, then we could do without chapter 5, couldn't we? She doesn't say anything new of what we learned in chapter 4, other than maybe the Kurds in a noble's bowl. But she doesn't mention anything content-wise. And so what we learn from Deborah, though, is that your life and my life ought to be interpreted through a divine lens. 
as opposed to just accepting it like, wow, this, I guess that's just the way it is. We, we beat the Canaanites. That's awesome. No, she looks at it through a lens of what is God doing in the midst of the land of Canaan. She's looking at everything through God's lens. You can see this in verse 3. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. And then verses 10 through 11. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of His villagers in Israel. And see, it's very easy to live life without being cognizant of how we are interpreting the happenings of life. As Francis Schaeffer, the great apologist, used to say, we are uh, functional atheists. We live our life as though God is not actively present in our life. I'm guilty of it. And I'm sure if you're human that you're guilty of it. Too often, I'm a passive observer in my relationships, a passive observer in my workplace, a passive observer as it relates to my neighbors. Instead of seeing behind the event that God is actually at work in and through that event. I'm sure it's probably due to some kind of defense mechanism and we're not going to get into any kind of psychoanalysis right now. I'm sure there's some kind of defense mechanism that keeps me at a distance from saying, what is God trying to do in in my heart? And really what I'm called to do and what you're called to do and what all of us are called to do is to slow down long enough to change the lens and say, how is God working in this situation in my heart. Not the lesson that God's trying to teach you, right? I've talked about a lot of times God is not like a teacher at the front of the the classroom who's knocking on the board and, and racking your knuckles, but instead God is taking you out into nature and saying, look at all this beautiful, all these beautiful things and for you to enjoy. He's a master teacher and through life he's trying to get you to slow down and consider that every conversation and every action that you're experiencing in the world is part of his classroom. It's part of what he's wanting to do in your heart. And I can look at difficulties in my life, and this is one of the things I've been meditating on a lot over the past month or so, is I can look at difficulties in my life and simply get annoyed. Simply get to fixing the situation, right? As opposed to saying, hmm, maybe if I slow down, maybe there's something that God wants to teach Matt. Instead of saying, no, 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 okay, that's a problem, let's fix it. Okay, that person, I can't believe they said that. Ghost. (laughs) I mean, isn't that how most of us live our lives? Instead of actually engaging in it, and instead of actually saying, God, I want to be fully aware and, and engaged in what you're doing in my life, we can just oftentimes say, what a loser. That's a really cruddy situation. I hate my job. I hate my neighbor. I hate my coworker. We may not use the word hate, but we say, they really get on my nerves. We do any number of things to prevent us from actually engaging with God at a deeper, functionally, spiritual level to say, God, what do you want to do in my heart? Maybe you want me to slow down. Maybe you want me to learn from that person that is grating on my nerves. Maybe you and I need to pause long enough to look at that particular moment that you have long interpreted as God being absent in your life, in your past, even as we prayed in our confession of sin together, that there are things in your life in the past that are hurtful and painful, and it's good to acknowledge that. But you can't change it. 
Because God promises you a future that is glorious and beautiful, and we are moving towards that day by day. And the Lord wants to free you from all of that and stop interpreting that moment as God just wasn't there or God isn't here. That maybe instead of just chalking it up as a really dark moment in your life, maybe you could consider that God was freeing you by drawing near to you, by showing that He's the only one who can satisfy your longings as opposed to Him being absent. Maybe He wanted to free you from worry and anxiety and fear. Maybe He wanted to free you from those things and instead you've just written it off as a moment that you don't want to remember and you definitely don't want to talk about. There's a time in my life, and I've shared this with you all before, at least in private conversations, there, there, there was a, a time in my life, uh, not in the too distant past, in which I frequently described as God forsaken. I was like, man, those were two years that I could just do without. <laughs> and I could still do without them. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't want to go relive those two years of my life. And yet, like in this time of war in Israel, I'm sure they probably didn't want to experience war either. I'm sure they weren't just like, yes, I can't wait to go get killed. <laughs> And instead, maybe God wanted me to see his nearness in that time of most darkness. A time of great breaking and humility in my life. Because those two years made me who I am today. And that's not to excuse all the junk in the past, but it is to say, Lord, you use that by me drawing near to you and being broken of certain things that I didn't even see in my life, but you did. And you graciously let that happen in my life. And so the first lesson we learn in that Deborah is doing throughout this entire song is that she is interpreting the world through God's lens. But then secondly, we see spirit. Spirit. And another way to say this is that our war is not with flesh and blood. Our war is not with flesh and blood, and I'm sure um, we've said this multiple times throughout Judges, and I know that we've said this when we walked through Deuteronomy together and when we walked through various Psalms that are a little unsavory, that all of these, these issues of war and of battle are meant to point us to a greater and deeper spiritual reality. In fact, Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, even though we do, but we don't. We do in part, but not in full, right? Wrestle with flesh and blood. But against who? Rulers. Against the authorities. You may feel like that. You're like, yeah, no, I don't agree with the authorities who are over me at this point. I don't agree with my, my boss. Or I don't agree with the politics. Or I don't agree with any number of things. And we can look at the, the flesh and blood right here and say, yeah, yeah, that's who I wrestle with. The Lord says, and I'm not done. He says, But we wrestle against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so we have to, along with point one of looking through God's lenses, is realize like the flesh and blood is only part of the equation. It's only part of the equation. And um, in preparation for this message, read a commentator by the name of Michael Wilcock, and he wrote this. He says, Canaan is the land that Israel should be occupying. That's true. He says, but the Canaanites' religion is Israel's great temptation. 
And now through suffering, she has come to see that they are her great enemy, powerful and persistent, a foe to be confronted. Not someone to make a truce with, not a group of people that you're just like, okay, we'll, we'll just kind of dabble in this, we'll accept these little pieces, and we'll accept the blasphemies and all these. No, it's meant to be confronted. And they have to look at their own heart and say, where have I run after Canaanite religions? Where have I run after the idolatry of the West? The great promise of the American dream. Where has it latched onto my heart and I have said, yes, that is what I'm after. When the Lord says, that's not the whole battle and that's not the whole war. The war is not against flesh and blood. In fact, we read a couple chapters early in Judges chapter 3, did we not? In verses 1 through 4, he says, uh, Now these are the nations that the Lord left in order to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. They, and here's the the summary statement, they were for the testing of Israel, not to see how strong their muscles were, not to see how strong their, their iron and their steel and their chariots and their horses were, but to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord. See, God uses the physical world to enflesh the spiritual world. We can actually see what's happening in the principalities and powers through the machinations of the flesh that are going on now. These are inextricably linked to each other. They're inextricably linked. And, and after all, you know, Jesus did say, I came to bring a sword of division. And, and I'm sure that Peter, in the garden of Gethsemane, he remembered that statement. He said, Jesus, you said you came to bring a sword of division. Let me get my sword out and I'm going to cut off the ear of Malchus. <laughs> and so he did. He took the physical as though that was the sum and substance of what Jesus was trying to do. And what did Jesus say in response to him? Jesus says in response to them, he says, Put your sword back, Peter, into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And later on, and that's in the Gospel of Matthew, but in the Gospel of John, Jesus says something really fascinating. He says, Could I not call a myriad of angels at my side and my Father would bring them and I, we could demolish all y'all right now? But there's a greater purpose, and this purpose is meant to lead to a greater salvation. Because the Canaanites and the Romans and your battles with sin will be constant. And that's the third point. Constant. Our war is constant. And it can be really, really tiring to look at your sin in your own heart and the sin and the, the brokenness in the world and just kind of make amends with it and say, you know what? That's cool. I'll just bear my head down and I'll just do my thing. But what we read in Scripture is that our war is constant. And this is something that could easily be missed. In fact, I, I missed it um, before I was studying this passage. But uh, there's a nut, so, so this is against Jabin. In chapter 4, we hear about Jabin, the king of the, uh, of the Canaanites, right? Well, in Joshua chapter 11, there's another Jabin who's the king of Hazor. And Hazor is another name for Canaan, the land of Canaan. And so Jabin, this is a different Jabin, but he's got the same name, coming to bring war. Same Canaanites. Different leader, same name, and that is meant on purpose to remind us that there is a constant battle. That once you think you defeat one Jabin, 
Here comes another Jabin. This is the same picture throughout the New Testament too, right? In Revelation where he says, you remember Babylon? You were in Babylonian exile? Well, there is a Babylonian problem coming in the book of Revelation too, right? Like, like these things don't just settle on their own except for a king who we'll look at here in a moment. But we uh, can oftentimes, and I can oftentimes think, man, I thought I dealt with that idolatry a long time ago. I thought I dealt with that sin like back when I was in high school and college. I thought I dealt with that just last week, and here it is. I'm dealing with the same thing. You can fill in the blank of what it is. Each of us have our own temptations to sin and our own temptations to, to view the world a certain way, and then it rears its ugly head again. might be what you don't need to be looking at or getting impatient or Worrying if you've got what it takes and trying to earn people's approval and being quiet. Maybe there's, a, there's a, a myriad of things that we as humans do that we write off as just that's the way I'm made. When in fact, God would say, maybe that is something we need to confess. Maybe this is something that we need to do battle with. Maybe we need to wage war against that. And so, we must engage in what God is doing in the world. We have to embrace the reality that on this side of glory, we are at war. Right? We wage war, not against flesh and blood, but with the principalities and powers. And this is what uh, the author of Hebrews says, just to bring some more, um, more uh, text to bear on well, what we're talking about here with the war is constant. In uh, Hebrews chapter 12, this is after the great hall of faith. Right, all these amazing people and of, of whom Barak is mentioned in that hall of faith and several other people. He says, he says to the, 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 the Hebrews, he says, In your struggle against sin, he identifies sin as the primary issue here. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what child is there whom his father does not discipline? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. If you get nothing else from this message than this, is that struggle is good. Struggling is good. A lot of times people will come to me and say, Matt, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. He's like, well, just by sheer fact that you care whether you're a Christian or not probably tells me that you are struggling to say, yes, I'm a Christian. The fact that you have not said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to always look at that or I'm always going to say that or I'm always going to be a jerk. <laughs> if you said that, then I'd probably say, yeah, you probably aren't. But if you are struggling with sin in your own heart and in the world around you, if you're trying to make a difference in your neighborhood, in your workplace, then you're probably walking with Jesus because the call is to engage in a war. Not with flesh and blood, but a spiritual war. But then fourthly, and I've alluded to this even just a moment ago, fourthly, we need to decide there has to be a choice of what you're going to do about it. Or you could even call this our faith and our works. Our faith and our works. Throughout uh, Deborah's song here, there's a theme of those who fought and those who sat still. Did you catch it? 
And there's a strong pull for us to sit and watch, to not be engaged in the war, but to let somebody else do it. It'll get done, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it won't. But without believing that God is with them and engaging in the war, the enemy would have overtaken God's people. Did you catch it? They could have said, you know, God's, God's my victor. He's my king. He's going to take care of them. He's like, well, you got to do something about it. And the Lord will use that faithfulness, that obedience, that work to be able to bring a redemption. Look at, in case you're skeptical, look at, look at verse 2, the very beginning. She says that the leaders took the lead in Israel and that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Contrast that, though, with verse 7. He says, the villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. Verse 9, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. See, the whole hinge of this song swings on verse 12. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, wake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinuam. And then 13 through 15, this is where you see the, um, the shift, right? Is that then down marched the remnant. They were waiting for a leader to stand up and say, this ain't right. This will not stand. So let's march against the enemy. So they followed after Deborah and Barak and they said, then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for, the, for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley. Right? The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, verse 15. But contrast that with verse 16. It's something that can be easily missed. Because we can celebrate Deborah and Barak and Jael. Those are awesome and we should celebrate it. But there are a myriad of people around them who did nothing. Look at verse 16. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. They were fearful. They're like, hey, we can't take, take these Canaanites. Let's just... Just let them have their land. We'll, we'll take over this. Just, we'll have Tel Aviv. They can have Jerusalem. No, they didn't do that. Verse 17, Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan and Dan. Why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still in the, at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. But, verse 18, there were a few. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali too on the heights of the field. Our call brothers and sisters, is that you decide to obey. You decide to engage in a war that is swirling all around you. Not to be passive in your homes and in your workplaces and in your neighborhoods and say, God, God will take care of that in the end. No, the Lord says, are you going to stand up and are you going to do something? Are you going to actually speak grace and truth to somebody who is searching? Because you were there too. You didn't have any hope until somebody opened their mouth and said, Hey, did you know Jesus loves you and he died to save you? <laughs> How will people believe unless someone is sent? How will people believe unless someone speaks? And that is our call as God's people to engage in the war, to help people see where their heart's longings are met in the one who made them. That's our call. And ultimately, all these works, this standing up and and taking a stand are the fruit of our faith. They're the fruit of their, our faith. They're not something that we muster up so that God loves us and accepts us. He loves us and accepts us. Therefore, we say, 
if he's like got my back, then why would I not go forward? Right? We're not doing it say, Lord, I'm going to take these people out and I hope you love me. No, he's not like that. It's something, these works, this obedience is something that flows out of the realization that God has conquered our greatest enemy, sin and death already. And so what can man do to me? Nothing. That's the great call that Paul says to all of the believers. He says, I'm going to just confidently go in and I'm, yeah, I'm going to get stoned. I'm going to get beat up. But death has no hold on me anymore. Sin has no claim on my life. I'm going to march into this city and I'm going to proclaim the gospel of good news and of salvation and grace. So that's where, fifthly, we go with depend. Depend. Because our faith is in God, not in our ability. And so consider this, Christian, because I think long time, it's been a long time that many Christians need to be reminded of this here in America, where we are tempted with comfort and ease, that God is for you. God is for you, and He is our commander-in-chief. Do you remember our first point, that we are called to interpret all of life through God's lens? Do you remember that? And like any good song, Deborah brings it full circle. She starts and ends with this very thing, that God is in the midst of all of this activity. So look at verse 4. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, She's she's talking about uh, uh, Egypt, their wilderness wanderings, right? Water dripped down, dew from heaven came down and watered the ground. But then she says later on in verse 11 that not only were you faithful to Israel in the wilderness wanderings, but then verse 11, to the sound of musicians at the watering places where they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. That it's also in the present, in this very moment, God is at work. And so many times we can think, well, man, I wish God would do some of those awesome things that he did in the Old Testament. Maybe even just in the New Testament, that'd be pretty awesome. He is. He is. He is for those who step out in faith to show them that miracles continue to happen. I am what is called a continuationist. And if you're wondering what that means, it means that I believe miracles still continue. For those who step out in faith, God will work miracles. He can work miracles. But then we see at the end of this song, verse 31, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. The Lord is calling us to shine like light in a darkened place because we are surrounded by darkness. We are surrounded by a lot of uh, listlessness, spiritual lethargy, and if we're not careful and if we're not vigilant, then we will let it pull our hearts to spiritual apathy. We will become like the nations around us and say, yeah, that's whatever, and we'll scroll, keep scrolling and just try to assuage the pain in our own hearts rather than letting God do the deep work in our own hearts. You remember how we um, heard from Hebrews just a moment ago to strengthen our hands and our, our weak knees? Well, the verse right before that admonition to strengthen, to to do something, right before that about being engaged in the world around us, the author of Hebrews says this, how do we do that? He says, consider him. This is how you don't grow weary in your fight, in your waging war against sin. He says, consider him who? Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The Lord invites you into a friendship 
The God of all creation, the infinite being, the one who owns you already says, I want to be your, the word here, friend. I want you by my side and I want you to know that we got this. Let's go. Let's go forward in faith. See, because God cares about his fame and glory. He's intimately involved in this world. And the question is whether you and I will sit on the sidelines and wait for somebody else to raise their hand or to step forward. The Lord says, no, no, no. I've given you my spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead so that you can also put to death the deeds of the body. I gave that spirit to you, not so you can say, man, I'm just always going to be struggling with this. No, he gave you his own spirit so that you can wage war against the sin in your own heart and find freedom and then also have the courage to go speak into other people's lives in grace and in truth. Let me pray for us.